How freaking cool is that? I have my own opening now. Thank you so much to my buddy Kenji for doing that. The attention to detail was out of this world. Just even the little things like it says Bobby instead of Sony. And when you plug the SCART cable into the flat screen, it's all blurry until you put it through an upscaler and then it's clear again. That was absolutely freaking killer. And um, I, we took the title track of our album, Live Your Way, and Kenji lined it up so every time, you know, the... The notes hit, you know, something moves on the screen. It's just, it's awesome. Thank you so much for doing that. I hope everybody liked it. For everybody listening, um, I'll have a, a more video game related version of that soon. But for anybody that saw on YouTube, that was just really cool. And thank you very much. Um, got a ton to talk about this week, so I'm just going to jump right into the news and try to get through all of it as quickly as possible. Because for some reason, tons of retro news this week. So let's start right into it. Last week, I uploaded a video review of the FDS stick, the Famicom Disk System ROM cart, and I actually got something wrong in it that I wanted to address. The developer of the FDS stick posted on the YouTube video, um, I'll just read what he said just to make sure I don't get it wrong again, um, a correction on the PCMU tab. It's not for use in emulators. The FDS stick acts as a USB to RAM adapter bridge. You use it to load ROMs directly from your PC instead of flashing them to the FDS stick first. It's more useful for early FDS stick models that only hold a few games. Also convenient for game development where you could quickly compile and run code directly on the NES. So, oops, my bad. Um, I don't think many people were going to try to use it for emulation anyway, but um, sorry. I actually asked if the developer would want to be on it for an interview this week, both to talk about that and his 3DS capture stuff, uh, and he just <laughs> ignored my responses. So, um, it's too bad. I really wish I could have talked to him about some of the stuff that he did, and I've been dying to pick his brain about the 3DS stuff. So, oh well, maybe next time. After posting the FDS stick video review, I got a bunch of great responses. Not only did the developer himself uh, chime in, which we just talked about, but a bunch of people told me about Famicom Tech, which has products that are pretty similar. Uh, they have the FDS MU, which is essentially the same thing as the FDS stick, but doesn't have a case to it, and it's about three times the price. So it doesn't seem like a great option. But they have something called the Magic Wildcard as well. And although it is about twice the price, it allows you to hold all the ROMs on a micro SD card and not actually on the device itself. So this might come in handy for somebody that doesn't want to use the Windows software, maybe you run Mac or Linux or something, or maybe you just prefer keeping everything on a micro SD card. But I got a Magic Wild card on the way to test just to see what it's like. Um, I'll end up giving whichever one I like less to my cousin Scott for him to use. Um, and I'll, I'll definitely report back. I won't do a full video review because if it works right, it's essentially the same exact thing as the FDS stick. But I'll mention it in the podcast and I'll just put a note in the ROM cards page. Um, and another really cool thing is Alex Upton sent a picture of what he used the Magic Wild card for. He actually opened up one of the FDS RAM adapters and soldered the Magic Wildcard directly inside of it, and then had another button where the hole for the wire was, essentially turning the RAM cart into its own ROM cart. So uh, I'll show pictures here, but basically he has it so you plug the RAM cart in the top of the Nintendo, and then the button is right in front. So I thought that was awesome. I'll, I'll post pictures of that up on the website, and uh, I really appreciate all the feedback and all the participation for people every time I post one of these videos. It's really helpful, and it's awesome that everybody gets to share the, the cool stuff and the cool ways that they use these products. So um, thanks again, and I'll report back when I get the Magic Wildcard. 
Last week, I showed a video of someone who hacked a light gun to work on flat screen monitors and mentioned how it would be cool if somebody just made one light gun with all that technology built in that would work with all the consoles. Apparently, somebody actually did that. So in response, somebody had posted in the YouTube comments about how that this actually existed from a company that's now out of business. They took the PS2 and Xbox GunCon games, so the ones that you'd have to plug the composite video connector into, and they were able to make that work in the similar way that that person in the video last week made it work, with a sensor bar that would work on all TVs, flat screen and CRT. I don't think something like this would work with a zapper, but it definitely worked with all of the newer ones, but it never really caught on. And unfortunately for things like this, it's all about timing. So right about at the point where a lot of people still have CRTs and flat screens are getting popular, which was about the time frame of this 10 years ago, people really didn't need something like this. But now that no one has a, a CRT anymore, at least not your average person, um, this is a more important product, and I bet if it came out now, it would actually sell, unlike this. So uh, I just thought it was a neat thing to report on, and hopefully somebody will bring something like this back that'll work on all the consoles on all TVs. The team behind the Dolphin emulator has announced that it now supports all GameCube games, including Star Wars The Clone Wars, which it was having issues with. Now, I'm not usually the biggest fan of emulation, but Dolphin, which is a GameCube and Wii emulator, has been mentioned countless times over the years, and I've had a bunch of friends tell me that they actually prefer it over the original because it'll render Wii games in 1080p, not just upscale them like with the Wii U, but actually render them in the higher resolution. So I had a few people say that, you know, they hook up their Wiimote and sensor bar to their PC and use it right on their flat screen and actually prefer it. So I've only tried it maybe two years ago was the last time I actually really sat down and tried it when I was able to go over a friend's house who has a really powerful video card. And I did think it was absolutely awesome. Uh, I played Mario Kart on it and it looked phenomenal. I couldn't believe the quality of it. But that was really the last time I'd actually put some time into it. So uh, if anybody has any comments on it and, uh, you know, any experience, definitely post below and, and let us know. But it's something I think I really want to get into and try again, because as much as emulation always has its hitches, um, I would kind of like to go back and play through Metroid Other M in 1080p. And yes, I'm one of the few people that actually liked that game, mostly. But uh, yeah, so uh, anybody that uh, has a decent, powerful video card and wants to check it out, I highly recommend it. Next up, Extrems added more features to the low latency version of the Game Boy interface software, which is the custom software that lets you play Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance games through the Game Boy Player for the GameCube. It's a lot of game in there. <laughs> um, but the low latency version adds um, a video option for 59.7276 video. So um, it might actually work, be more compatible with certain TVs. Uh, adds control schemes, and it actually adds support for the RAFNET N64 adapter. I'm not really sure why you would want to use an N64 adapter on a Game Boy Advance game, but I think that must be a thing. But uh, always happy to see any updates from Extrems. I love that software. So far, it's my favorite way to play Game Boy Advance games. And hopefully I can get him on for an interview at some point to kind of talk about how it works. But um, anybody using it, definitely upgrade to the newest version. In a bit of surprising news, during the Apple iPhone event last week, Apple actually announced that they're going to have Mario games on the iOS devices, and Miyamoto himself even came out to do a demo of it. So I knew this was going to happen eventually, but this is 
kind of unexpected because Nintendo has always been pretty controlling over their intellectual property. But the game seems perfect for mobile devices. It just seems like a one-button push, and it seems like every other generic run game, but with Mario and the music from Mario. So it seemed fine, and it seemed like something that would actually complement their products, not take away from it. I know a lot of people were kind of freaking out, like, well, this is the death of Nintendo, but I don't know, I, I kind of saw it as a good move, to be honest with you. But uh, check out the video for yourself, and um, I'll leave a link to the announcements uh, in the comments. Sony actually held their PlayStation event the same day as the Apple event, and had a very long list of things to announce, including release dates for the next PS4 consoles. So the PS4 Slim is coming out on September 15th for $300, and that's just the slimmed-down version of the PS4. Uh, much like every other uh, PlayStation revision, towards the end of the life cycle they have a slimmed-down package, and that's just what this is. Next is the console that was rumored as the PS4 Neo or the PS4K. It was announced that it's actually called the PS4 Pro, and that's releasing on November 10th for $399, and that's the console that will upscale all of the games to 4K. Unfortunately, they also didn't really announce, they kind of omitted from the announcement, that it's not going to support Ultra HD Blu-rays which is a huge disappointment for me because that's really one of the main reasons I wanted to buy the PlayStation 4 Pro. Um, I don't have a 4K TV yet, but when I do, I figured it would be great to have a console that already supports the discs, but I, they just, they're not including it, which is kind of annoying because they were in the forefront of Blu-ray technology, including it in the PS3. So I'm not really sure why they decided to do that, but that's really disappointing. Um, and for anybody that wants all of the other info, I'll post a link to the PlayStation page in the description. But um, there's a ton of info of all the other things they released, and a little bit of uh, controversy over the specs of the PS4 Pro while running in 4K. So because it hasn't been released yet, I, you know, there's no solid info, but I'll uh, leave the link down there, and uh, you guys could, if you're interested, see for yourself what you think about the 4K support. The GameCube video kits are now available to purchase from BadassConsoles.com, and the GameCube video is the homemade version of the digital output and analog output for GameCubes. So instead of spending $250 on the component cables, you can get one of the analog kits and get component VGA and RGB, or one of the digital kits to get HDMI, or you could actually install both to have every option. Personally, I'm going to have both, uh, and I'm really excited for it. At the moment, you could buy the do-it-yourself kits, and they'll ship right away, uh, and there's many different options to choose from. Also, you could get installation services, but he's not offering that till October. But if you pay now, you could kind of get your place set in line so that when he's ready to start taking the installation, that you could, he'll just contact everybody and you could send him in you know, as, uh, as asked. Um, he also put up a pretty cool notice on there that says, uh, an attention for scalpers. Uh, and that's really cool because I can't stand to see that happen. People get like uh, people got a couple of the high def NES kits, and as soon as they were sold out, they put them on eBay for like four hundred bucks. It's crazy. But um, so his message is: badass consoles will always have GameCube video available for sale. Attempts to price gouge will be futile. I love it. So uh, good job, Michael. Screw everybody that's trying to screw us. So um, go to his website if you want one. Um, and I, as soon as I get mine in, I'm going to do a full review and uh, really try to hit all the features. And I'll do a video and a page for it and uh, really just put it through its paces. But I'm very excited to check it out, and I will let everybody know when mine arrives. 
There's been a few updates posted about the HDMI Dreamcast project. First, they have a custom flex cable that's going to make installation a lot easier. So rather than solder individual tiny little wires to tiny little spots on a chip, much like the Ultra HDMI installation, you could just have a flex cable that goes over it and just use flux and do some drag soldering, which should make installation way easier. Also, the board has been upgraded with more SDRAM, which allows for better 480i deinterlacing. And also, they're supposedly going to add uh, core emulation for the FPGA part, meaning that you could actually emulate other consoles through the Dreamcast, similar to like a Mist box. So that's cool. I mean, anytime there's new features, um, I'm always, you know, totally on board, but I can't really see myself using it for that. Uh, definitely can't wait to have a high-def Dreamcast, but um, I, I don't know. Maybe that'll benefit their other projects better, but hey, whatever, as long as... Uh, any more features, the more the merrier, I guess. Uh, I think all the upgrades put another delay on the project, and there's no exact word on when it'll be out, but I'm hoping soon. I mean, it looks like it's the project's coming to an end because they have everything prepared and ready and tested, and anytime there's any kind of actual release date, I'll make sure to update, and uh, or if there's a pre-order, I'll uh, tweet and post on social media right away. The team at Ness Rocks has released the Super Pitfall 30th Anniversary Edition, which is an IPS patch for the original Nintendo game, Super Pitfall. And it has new graphics, new music, uh, and a bunch of different enhancements for it. And it just seems like a pretty cool update for a game that I, I never really played, but I'd heard a bunch about. So I'll leave a link in the description for anybody that wants it, and I'm sure that's going to be in the next Smoke Monster ROM pack, um, if anybody just wants to wait for it to actually come out as a ROM. Next... Crix has updated the firmware for the GBA EverDrive again, this time adding more support for emulators. So it's really great to see that it's an ongoing project that's going to continuously get updates. Um, I'm really happy that uh, he's still working on this as well as the other ones, and you never know what new features you're going to get with it. Um, also, Smoke Monster has updated the ROM set for it to include the new emulators. So uh, this is just a quick update, so if you own a GBA EverDrive, Definitely throw on the new firmware and uh, go get the updated version of the ROM pack. Next, I've received my Atari Lynx ROM cart from Retro Headquarters in the UK. So I plan on doing a mini review of this next week. Um, it's not too much to talk about because it's essentially just a ROM cart, but I still wanted to show it in action. And also, the creator, Saint, on the Atari Age forums is still working on a Jaguar ROM cart and has expressed interest in others as well, including possibly the Neo Geo Pocket and even the Atari 7800. So anytime there's any real solid updates on any of those projects, I'll definitely uh, post and let you know about it, uh, especially when the Jaguar ROM cart pre-order comes in, because that's definitely something I'm going to want. But until then, um, expect a review on this next week and I'll have uh, as many details as I can on it. Low Budget just announced that the Super 8 console will go up for pre-order on Thursday, October 6th. So for anybody that doesn't remember, the Super 8 is a bare-bones NES kit, which requires the two chips, the CPU and PPU, from a Nintendo or Famicom, and then once you install those, then it's a fully working Nintendo console. There's actually going to be two consoles up for pre-order. One is going to be a fully working version that includes the NES RGB kit. So you could just buy a completed system as is. The other is going to be another bare-bones kit that requires your two chips, but it could also work with either a NES RGB or the high-def NES kit from Keptris. Um, he'll also offer installation services for the bare-bones kit if you want. 
So I still think it is my strong opinion that if you have a broken console, one that's physically broken, which I still occasionally get emails about, you know, people find a smashed Nintendo in their attic, this is the perfect solution for it, and you're going to want to jump on it. Because rather than have a busted up plastic case or, or even possibly a cracked board or something, you could remove the chips from those and then use them in this other box, which is just going to be overall a great solution for it. Everything is brand new except your two chips. It'll support either HDMI or RGB with the addition of the other board. And it really is just the perfect solution for anybody with a smashed console. Um, I imagine other people might want it anyway, just because it's neat and different. But um, if you're sitting on a broken Nintendo or a broken Famicom, definitely jump on this one and, and seize the opportunity. Because I'm not really sure if he's going to be making many more of these. So now's the time. And lastly for the news, I have an update from Ben, the creator of the Retro DC Power Supply, which is the one power supply that can power multiple consoles. He says that all of the pre-orders have shipped as promised. He had uh, originally said that all will ship by September, and that he's starting a new pre-order batch, which will ship in January. So he's been pretty spot on with his target ship dates. Um, he's also searching for a bulk supplier of adapter cables that'll allow it to work with a SNES. So right now, the cables will allow for all Genesis and Master System versions, as well as a whole long list of other consoles which he has up on his website. But the one adapter that he wasn't able to get was the Super Nintendo one. Um, so if anybody knows where you can get a large bulk of those uh, at a good price, let me know. But um, the one alternative for anybody that needs to is you could actually buy an adapter from console5.com, which will work with his setup. So I'll leave a link in the description uh, for anybody wants the, wants this one power supply to work with all of their consoles. Um, and Ben wanted to pass a message on to everybody watching. Uh, he said he appreciates everybody's patience and general conduct, and it's really nice to see how many people in the scene are, are all class all the way, all around the world. Uh, and I got to agree with him 100%. Uh, a lot of the projects that I've worked on, or at least been a small part of, just uh, seeing everybody help out is always great. People are generally really nice and patient and understand that we're just individuals trying to do this for fun and maybe for a little money. But, um, you know, we're not big companies that are trying to meet target dates. So uh, definitely appreciate Ben getting everything shipped on time. And if anybody is looking for a replacement power supply for a lot of different consoles, this is definitely one that you should pick up. So links are in the description um, and check out his website for all the details. Now on to the Q&A stuff. We actually had a bunch of really great discussions across pretty much all the videos within the past week, but only a few really required video responses this time, which is still awesome. So thank you very much for everybody that participated and uh, you know anybody that has any questions, you know never never be afraid to speak up. And while we only have a few to talk about this week, it was still a bunch of great discussions uh, and really you know worthwhile comments. So thanks again, and I guess I'll get right to it. First up, Caesar Montez asked. What's the best way to play original Xbox games? The 360 via HDMI, its own component cables, or VGA? Well, I'm actually going to dig pretty deep into Xbox in the next coming months and have a full page up on the website, as well as probably a few videos. But just to answer the, the short versions of those questions, um, 
at the moment, there's really nothing wrong with the component output of the Xbox. So if you're using that, you're still getting a great picture that can go from 480i uh, to 480p to 720p, and even up to 1080i, but that doesn't really look great. You want to stick to 720p and 480p if you can. Um, so using it that way certainly isn't a bad way to do it. And Xbox 360 via HDMI, uh, I've heard mixed things about it, um, and I would really just try your game and see. Uh, if your game is supported and it works well for you, maybe that is a great way to do it. But the things that I really wanted to dig deep into is Phone Dork keeps telling me about a software hack that allows you to have sync on green output. So it's a, it's a little bit different than component and kind of similar to the PlayStation 2 sync on green. And he says he gets a better picture out of that, which I'm really looking forward to trying out. Also, my friend Phil has his both software and hardware modded for straight VGA. So no sync on green at all. It actually is a full VGA signal. So I really want to dig deep into both of these and see if there's advantages of any of them and kind of have a comparison pictures like I did for the rest of the site. But for now, the short answer is, um, you know, through this 360 or through itself on the component video output are, are good solutions. They're not bad. It's not like playing through composite or anything like that. But uh, I'll soon enough have a full update to see if there really is a better way to do it and if you could squeeze just a little more power out of your Xbox. Next, YouTube user Cardboard Toilet. <laughs> I just got a mental picture of a cardboard toilet. Thanks for that. And now I can't unsee that. <laughs> um, do you know anything about the ShinyBow SB2840 RGB to component converter? I've heard good things about it, but I'm curious how the picture quality compares to HD Retrovision's cables. So I have not used that specific converter. Uh, I've had great luck with ShinyBow stuff, though. They're usually good quality. But... Um, I guess the better question to be asking is how many consoles do you need to convert? So I had somebody a while back send me a very cool picture of, you know, he had the G-SCART switch with eight consoles going into the CSY2100 um, uh, component or RGB to component converter into, um, you know, into his tube TV. And it was great. I mean, it was the perfect solution because he had a ton of different consoles. But if you're really just talking about Nintendo, Super Nintendo, N64, GameCube if it's PAL, or any of the Genesis or Master System consoles, then I would definitely recommend just getting the HD Retrovision cables because they're specifically designed for console use, whereas a lot of these other ones were just kind of general purpose. And some people run into issues now and then, especially with the clone CSY consoles. You have to open it up and kind of tweak the potentiometers in order to get the correct uh, color signals on there, which, you know, doing it by eyesight, you're never going to get it perfect. So it's not the greatest solution. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it's really, if your consoles that you predominantly use are supported by the HD retrovision cables, definitely just get those. But if you have a ton to go through, you know, uh, I guess I would just buy the, the one that people have been using a lot, the CSY2100 original, not the clone, and just kind of connect everything through a G-SCART switch into that, into component. Next, Retro Gamer Bullet Bob wanted me to talk about my capture card and the different things that I use along with it. So I actually like the StarTech.com USB 3 HD cap because uh, it's compatible with pretty much all the resolutions I throw at it, including 240p. 
Um, as for software, I just use the stream catcher software that it comes with, um, just because it's quick and easy. Uh, the only options that I ever set are I make sure to match the aspect ratio, turn all the qualities up high, and then I use MP4 capturing, because I've had issues with AVI captures being compatible with certain software. Uh, but if anybody wants a guide on how to use different software that allows you a lot more control, um, Blizz has a page up on his site that's awesome for it. Um, but as far as the hardware goes, um, it just uh, it's a USB 3 only. So that's one thing I learned. It has to be USB 3. It won't be compatible with USB 2.0. Um, and for HDMI capture, I just go directly into here. And for some consoles, um, I need to actually split the signal because it doesn't, doesn't have a pass-through. So if I'm going into my flat-screen TV into that, I'll actually use the view HD 1x2 splitter because it's uh, it works well with game consoles and um, there aren't as many HDCP issues so that's the VHD 1x2 MN 3D I guess it means it's compatible with 3D as well uh, and this is powered not passive so you uh, it comes with a power adapter it's just something to note because I uh, I know a lot of people have to worry about putting different power supplies in um, but that's pretty much pretty much it for HDMI. I either go directly in or through the splitter. Uh, for component video, there's an adapter cable that plugs in uh, right there that has component and audio. There's also composite and S-video inputs through here. Um, and this is also when I'm using the DVI input. Um, I just use the left and right audio inputs of this cable and then just set that in the actual settings. Um, if I'm going through retro gaming consoles, there's two scenarios that I might actually use with it. Um, one might be just the open source scan converter uh, directly into the DVI input of this. And then I use the, the separate audio output into the separate audio dongle, um, the little breakout cable I just showed. And that's a great 720p capture. Uh, it looks phenomenal, and this is definitely a good way to do it. Um, but the other thing, the other way I might want to go is directly in. So you could use the just a standard DVI to VGA passive dongle to go right in. Um, but this does require... Uh, C-Sync. You can't use Luma as sync or anything. So I actually just got a little gender adapter uh, and I use my sync strike. Uh, you could use a G-SCART switch or anything else. Um, and I actually just plug it in directly into it. I don't even, you don't even use a cable. So it's just one less thing that could possibly go wrong. So it's kind of a, a funny looking solution, but this, um, this is a common way to get direct 240p in for me. Uh, and it seems to work really well. Um, the other thing, if you're capturing and you don't worry so much about quality, you just want to make sure to get it in a higher resolution. Um, so, like, you're not going to do uh, video comparisons, but maybe you want to stream on Twitch or, or maybe just capture game footage of you playing. There is that cheap uh, video upscaler. Now, I generally hate this thing for just a million reasons, uh, and they're terrible quality. I mean, the one that I got worked once for about an hour and then died. It's never worked again. So expect awful quality, but they're really, really cheap. I mean, you could just go SCART in, and then you just take the HDMI output of this thing directly into the HDMI output of the capture card. Um, and although it does process 240p as 480i, 
Uh, if you send it to 720p or 1080p through this, it's not terrible. And in my opinion, if you're just showing gameplay footage and it's not a video comparison, I actually think it's a great solution because it would look better than just stretching a 240p image. Um, I think there's, depending on how far you want to get into it, if you use Blizz's methods, you could actually reprocess all that video from 240 to 720, and it will look better than this thing. But if you just simply want to quickly record some gameplay footage, you know, you're playing through Sonic 1, you stick it through this thing into that capture card, and you stick it online, and, you know, you just want a quick solution, that's great. Or, or Twitch streaming or anything like that. Um, but that's really the only scenario that I would use these things, because I, I know the guys in my life in gaming didn't think they were too bad. I hate them. Phone door Kate's is too. Uh, and mine's completely dead, so if you know anybody that wants anything for it, I was, you know, I, I, have, I don't even know what to do with it at this point. But um, So I hope that wasn't too long of a description, but the USB 3 HD cap is the one that I've been using, uh, and I really like it. Um, you know, I think there's better ones out there, but for general use, I would definitely recommend it. And lastly, Lou Billy had a question about HDMI switchers. He asked if there were any that I recommend, and do any of them interfere with the scaling? So, to be honest, I've actually never used an HDMI switch. Um, I have all my components that I use on a daily basis always plugged into the back of my TVs, and then there's always that one HDMI port on the side that I use to plug my game consoles into. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Um, as far as interfere with the scaling, the only thing that I know is as long as it isn't a switch that does any video processing. So I've seen a few switches that it's like, you know, component, S-video, composite, and HDMI out to HDMI. It's going through some kind of video processor, and that potentially adds lag, messes with scaling. But just generic HDMI switchers... Um, I don't know that they would have any problems, but to be honest, uh, my cousin Scott actually has more experience than I do in this, so uh, I asked him to jump in and answer the question. Hey Scott, thanks for jumping on and helping with the question. Uh, I would go out to you, but I don't have a spaceship to get to Bay Ridge in this traffic, so we're going to do it over Skype. <laughs> Works with me. Um, so what was the issue that you were having with your HDMI switcher? Because I remember you telling me about it, but I totally forgot what it was. Well, uh, the main problem that I had with my switcher was I was using a Chromecast for a little while uh, to send a signal from my iPad, and uh, it would go intermittent every once in a while, like, kind of frequently. Like, after maybe, like, 15 minutes, it would, uh, it would just, like, black out for a second or something like that, and uh, that would have the effect of the auto-switcher on my um, active HDMI switch uh, clicking over to another um, another source, which was particularly difficult because I have some sources that are always on, uh, like my Raspberry Pi uh, Media Center. So it would basically, like, you'd be watching it for a little while, and then it would, un like, unavoidably just end up clicking over to another source that you weren't using, and it was absolutely maddening. So gotcha. I was trying to work around that. I was trying to find uh, switchers where you could turn off auto-switching, and, and that one doesn't uh, have it? I had a hard time finding a switch that was more than like a 2 by that um, that didn't have auto-switching at all. Uh, and there you was have some... one of those really popular Monoprice switches too, right? Yeah, I use the... Uh, I'm currently using the Monoprice HDXC501E. Okay. It's a 5 by one HDMI switcher, and uh, it's got a remote 
And, um, I mean, otherwise it works fine. I mean, I use it literally every day and it never gave me any problems of a, of a material kind besides my interaction with this Chromecast. So I principally blame the Chromecast in this regard, but it wasn't playing nice. Now, before I used the 5 by one the only two sources that I had that I ever used that were HDMI compatible, like at the beginning of sort of the HD era, was my PlayStation 3 and my laptop. So I had a 2 by one passive switch, uh, which Monoprice also made. It's called, it, it's the model HDS 201. And, uh, I mean, it worked fine. It was fully manual. It had a little click button on it. And, um, and I had no problems with that in any kind. Um, and you haven't found more than a 2 by one that's passive? I was Googling it for a little while, and at least uh, there's a part of me that wonders if maybe there were some super expensive ones, but I don't think I even saw that. Hmm. Uh, it seemed like, I, I don't think, you might know this better than I do, I'm, I'm not 1,000% sure that it's easy to just wire up HDMI connections the same way you would, uh, you know, like an RCA. So. It's not, and I believe it, a lot of it has to do with the handshake and HDCP. Exactly, yeah. I would so think you, that maybe, if, you know, if they did the digital version of, you know, like lifting up and over that they could pull it off, but I, I certainly wouldn't. And yeah, the you know, switching thing is a big deal, too, especially for people that use the FrameMeister, because every time you would switch like switch a profile, or if you're going from 240p to 480i, like the PlayStation cutscenes, it actually uh, drops the uh, HDMI connection. So it's actually really plausible that you'd have a cable box or DirecTV or even a Raspberry Pi plugged in that's yeah. always on. You switch it over to the FrameMeister, and then you go to a cutscene on PlayStation, and then it goes to the other source. So that's actually a valid issue that it, most people that have a FrameMeister, or I guess even the OSSC for, for the same thing. Yeah, and I, I would warn that I did run one experiment that's that's uh, worthy to discuss in this context, which is a failure, which was uh, once I encountered this problem with the Chromecast, I tried to daisy-chain my two switchers together. Mm-hmm. So I used the 2x1 uh, the as, the, as the root one, and I put the Chromecast on, like, input 2 and put the... I put, like, an HDMI jumper mm-hmm. into my 5x1 on uh on input one and my hope was that i could just manually switch between uh you know just using the regular five by one auto switcher for all my regular sources and if i wanted to use the chromecast i could just click over to it but uh it screwed up the handshake on some things and uh i I just had a lot of problems it it, it became a lot more intermittent and some things actually did work but um not everything and it was it was a bit it was a bit of a bummer that's actually what I would expect. And uh, somebody um, a few weeks ago had talked about using their AVR as uh, both an upscaler and an AVR switch. And I haven't had time to look into it, but that's something that I, I really want to research because I emailed Fuda about it. I think his name, I always screw it up. But he, um, uh, and he was saying that the particular model that this guy was talking about has the same chip as the FrameMeister. So the FrameMeister has two chips, one that processes 240p and then the other one that handles it there. So by okay. plugging it directly in, you're actually getting, uh, you're, it's processing the older consoles as 480i. But in scenarios where you're using a FrameMeister or you're using an OSSC or maybe even like the AVS, that new Nintendo thing, 
I'm wondering if using an AVR with a 4K upscaler built in into a 4K TV would actually solve all of these problems. Because a lot of these have eight or nine HDMI inputs, so that should be enough for all the devices. Plus, you have everything running SCART into like the OSSC into this. So that and um, the it was less than a frame of lag. So that's a viable thing in the future. But for somebody that just wants a basic HDMI switch now, um, I guess the one you use, as long as they're careful with the auto switch, they don't have to worry about lag because there's no processing done to it. But there isn't just a passive switch, I guess, that I could recommend. Well, the two by one passive switch is terrific. The one that I, I don't know if Monoprice More than makes two. it anymore, but um, the the five by one is not a passive switch; it's an active switch. Gotcha. You plug it in. Okay. Uh, and and one other thing I'll warn about it because I really hated about it is it has lights on it that are approximately as bright as the sun. <laughs> and um, I had to put like I think it's got like three layers of painter's tape. Yeah. In front of the front of the panel of it. Yep. And you can still see the lights like through the tape as clear as day. Oh yeah. And if you took you took it off, it literally would light your room as well as like <laughs> as good as a as a regular light bulb would. Most of my equipment has black tape of sorts all over the lights. Yeah, right. It drives me nuts. <laughs> and then every time I go to sell it, I have to sit there with goo gone and rubbing alcohol and just get off all the goo from the freaking tape <laughs> on it. But yeah, I feel your pain. I've tried everything from coloring it in with the Sharpie to you know, to tape and yeah, that does annoy me. I actually think I I can't remember which which device I'm thinking of, but there was one that I I know the Retron Five. When I took it apart to do the review, the light was so bright and annoying that I just unplugged it, put it back together without the light on. So that oh, way. that's a good solution. Yeah, if you can if you can break it open and just clip the things, that would be fine. Gotcha. All right, man. Well, thanks for jumping on and doing this. Uh, I really was curious about what your issue was, and hopefully we'll warn people off from the same stuff. Yeah, good luck, everybody. Well, that's about it for this week. I actually had a few people scheduled for interviews, but everything kind of fell through and the timing didn't really work out. But it actually works out for the best, because this is the longest roundup I've ever done, and I didn't really want it to drag on, and I don't ever want to bore anybody. So, of all the weeks to not have a guest, this is probably going to be the best one. Well, a guest other than Scott, but he's not a guest to me, because he's uh, he's just always part of the site. So, maybe he's a guest on the podcast, but certainly not in my interactions with him. Um, not really much else to say. I still really want to do that meetup. Um, if people are even interested, I received a few emails. Um, people said they're definitely going to try to go, but I know how that works, right? They're both, you know, it's a Wednesday and a Friday, so it's during the week. People have to drive. I get it. Um, and the Wednesday one is still kind of a little flaky because the promoter for the gig is being weird, which still blows my mind. In any other business in the world, if you flaked out on something, you'd be fired. But in the music business, it's just the way it is, and people tolerate it. So um, I'll confirm again uh, for next week's podcast, but it's looking like Wednesday, September 28th at the Knitting Factory in Brooklyn, and then Friday, that's just a few days later, Friday the 30th at Mr. Beery's in Long Island, which is kind of like a cool bar with a ton of beers. So if anybody's around for those dates, kind of mark it on your calendar. I should have solid confirmation for next week's podcast. And, um, and you know, hopefully this is something that we could do every couple of months. Just a bunch of us get together, have a couple of drinks, and just hang out, talk about retro gaming, music, whatever. Um, but, yeah, hopefully people are interested and people will show up. And uh, as always, all comments and feedback are appreciated, and I'll see you guys next week.